0: invite you to take your copy of God's Word and be finding your place once more in the book of Amos chapter 5, the fifth chapter of Amos. I want to return to this chapter. I began looking at it last week and if you're here for the first time over the last several weeks we've been in a study of the book of Amos comprised of nine chapters. It's a minor prophet in the Old Testament but it's a minor prophet book with a major, major message. And the overall emphasis in the book is that of divine justice. And the emphasis of the chapter, chapter 5, is one of lamentation. And that's a word that's used both in verse 1 as well as down in verse 16. And the language of the first few verses of the chapter reveal this chapter to be a funeral dirge A song of lamentation, much like those that had been raised over someone who had died, yet with so much promise, someone who had tragically died in a premature way. And what we find here is a sad song raised by the prophet uh, Amos over Israel, who's crying out over their sins. And in many ways, this fifth chapter is an autopsy report of a lifeless religion, illustrating for us how religious activity is not the same thing as a vibrant faith. Uh, It is an Old Testament illustration of what James will later describe in chapter 2 of his epistle in the New Testament, where he says that faith without works is dead and useless. Now, by this point in our study of Amos, we're squarely in the main section of the book. The roar of impending judgment has been announced in the first three chapters. Uh, Here in chapter five, again, the prophet is raising his voice uh, as a cry, a sad song. Israel had sinned, they had drifted from God, and God was going to deal with his wayward people because they had set aside his word in favor of their own opinions. They'd become so shallow and superficial in terms of their worship. And they had become self-centered in terms of their relationships with one another. Their social ethics. uh, Society was coming apart at the seams. It had been a time of prosperity, a time of affluence. However, God's people became complacent. They didn't prioritize his house, but rather their own. And they assumed his presence in their midst, no matter how they lived and treated one another. And all of this complacency fostered idolatry. And so God raises up Amos and sends him into the northern kingdom of Israel to announce a message. It was a message of judgment. And so he's crying out against what God's people had tragically become. And so with that in mind, let's read beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says, hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen, no more to rise, is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out a thousand shall have a hundred left. That which went out a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel." For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. So, notice how he's dealing with society's ills and their treatment of their fellow man in verse 7, but not before addressing the issue of worship. Where there is a breakdown in relationship, there has first of all been a breakdown in worship. God's people had not loved the Lord their God with all of their heart, with all of their soul and their mind. And the result of that, they weren't loving their neighbor either. And so before Amos is dealing with these specific sins, he's putting his finger as a prophet on the real heart of the issue. And it was an issue of their heart and how their heart had drifted from God, how idols had replaced the worship of the one true God. Verse 8, he who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name, who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and exact taxes of grain from him, you've built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You've planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins, you who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it's an evil time Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. And it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. I want to preach once more from this thought, the saddest of all songs. But again, we began looking at this passage this funeral dirge that was raised by the prophet Amos over the wayward house of Israel. Now there are several things from this passage that I want to point out. The first of which I have already mentioned. We considered it at length last week. But it's the lamentation of God's prophet as expressed there in verses 1, 2, and 3. The chapter begins with a phrase. It's the third time the phrase is used. It's the phrase, hear this word. And it conveys a sense of urgency with which God's people are to hear the message and to heed the message. And what follows then is a lamentation, a funeral song as Amos the prophet is weeping over the condition of God's people. In fact, that word lamentation uh, literally means elegy, a song raised in lament. And it's a strange way, but he's doing it in such a way to get the attention of Israel. In many ways, it's like having the funeral for a person before that person actually had died. That's what the word means there, lamentation. It's as if their obituary is being printed in the paper before they had died, and the prophet is forcing God's people to read it, and in that way, it's intended to be an attention grabber. It's designed to be shocking. Well, what was it that had happened from the prophet's perspective? Well, verse 2, notice the word fallen and the word forsaken. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. So because of sin and because of turning away from God, she had fallen like some young maiden who had died prematurely. And Amos is a broken hearted prophet who's raising his cry over a nation that had turned its back on the Lord. And aside from a move of God's spirit to bring about repentance and revival, there was nothing but ruin over their horizon. So to get their attention, to convey how serious their situation truly was, the prophet is singing this sad song. He's a man who's weeping over sin He's broken over the spiritual condition of God's people. And it's fitting because his name, the name Amos, literally means one who bears a burden. So you see him bearing that burden. His burden is expressed in his tears as he's mourning over Israel. That means he's a tender hearted man of God who's weeping over the sin and unbelief of his day. Yes, as a prophet he was bold when it came to confronting sin, but that doesn't mean he was arrogant. Which by the way, you know that there's a difference between genuine boldness and arrogance. You can be bold, but you don't have to be arrogant. We speak truth, but we're always to speak the truth in love. That's what the prophet is doing here. He's not lambasting his generation with a condemning spirit, but he's burdened to the point of tears over the lostness of his generation. Alec Matir says it this way, most certainly Amos was a prophet who feared no man, but this doesn't mean that he went around shaking his fist in people's faces or behaving in a needlessly provocative manner. So he's bold before men because Amos is broken before God, and his tears serve as evidence of the sorrow of his own heart, the depth of the compassion that he had over the ills of Israelite society. And so in that way, he joins ranks with all of the prophets and servants of God uh, who were before him, who came after him, who walked with God in their day with tears streaming down their cheeks as they preach, broken over the devastating effects of what sin does in the lives of people. Now, at this point, by way of application, we need to ask this question of ourselves. Do we truly mourn over sin? Are we deeply grieved over sin, beginning with sin in our own personal lives? Do we grieve over what sin does in the lives of those that we love? Do we mourn over how sin destroys, divides, kills, or are we spiritually insensitive? I don't know about you, but I want to be a spiritually sensitive Christian. The enemy would love nothing more than to render us insensitive, desensitized to the way that sin leads to bondage. I think it was Vance Havner who who once preached a sermon, getting used to the dark, the way that we're always, it's, it's easy for us if we're not careful to no longer be moved, to no longer be burdened, to no longer be shocked, and before you know it, you can become insensitive And the irony of this, the closer you get in your relationship with God as a believer, the more sensitive to your own sin you will become. The closer you grow in terms of your personal relationship with God, the more painfully aware you're going to be made aware of your need of a Savior and the seriousness of your own sin. And aren't you grateful that there's grace and mercy and compassion to be found in Jesus? So that's the lamentation of God's prophet. Now, notice the second thing here And it's this, the invitation into God's presence. Notice the invitation is extended there in verse four, thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live. Yes, things were terrible, but thank God, God is extending this gracious offer to his people. Seek me and find life. Seek me and live. Well, in spite of all that was going on in Israelite society, the people in Amos' day were very religious. They visited their religious shrines, they were devoted to rituals, but it was nothing more than a superficial display of outward observances. In other words, it didn't come from a heart that had been truly changed. Their religion was man made. And so God is concerned that the devotion of his people not be distracted by this unhealthy focus on places, places that had become shrines. And you notice places are mentioned there in verse five, Bethel, Gilgal, and Beersheba. Now these particular places had been very important places. They held significance in the lives of Israel's patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Bethel was a significant place because of the religious history that it held for Israel. Genesis 12 says that it was the first place that Abram came to uh, when he came into the promised land. He built an altar there. He called upon the name of the Lord. It was here at this place that Jacob had a dream where he saw a ladder reaching into heaven, and he first heard God speak to him. God affirmed his covenant with Jacob, Genesis 28, and God said to him there at that place, I'm with you, I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back into this land. And so when Jacob woke up from that experience, he said, surely the Lord is in this place. This is none other than the house of God, the gate of heaven. And so it's Jacob who names the place Bethel, which means house of God. He sets up a pillar there, And that name was associated with the spiritual reality that God was there revealing himself, speaking to Jacob. That's the significance of Bethel. Now, later on in Israel's history, after the kingdom was divided, it was here at Bethel that King Jeroboam built a rival sanctuary, a sort of a rival shrine to the temple in Jerusalem. And it was a very subtle thing. It was was designed to be an innovation in worship, a more convenient form of worship rooted in the wisdom of man rather than the word of God. But he does it in a place that held religious significance for Israel. Bethel is associated with identity, life, God revealing himself, that kind of thing. Now, hold on to that. A second place mentioned there in verse number uh, uh, five is Beersheba. is significant because this is a place that held value to I, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Genesis 21 says it was at Beersheba where Abraham was told that God would be with him in all that he did. Be not afraid, for I am with you. That was the Lord's promise to Abraham at Beersheba. Years later, by the time we get to Genesis 46, Jacob was on his way to Egypt to be reunited with Joseph. The Bible says that he arrives at Beersheba and there God gave him this reassurance, I am the God of your father, be not afraid for I will go down with you. So if Bethel becomes associated with identity, Beersheba is a place that becomes associated with fulfillment. God with his people, leading them into blessing. Now there's a third place mentioned there in verse 5 it's Gilgal. Gilgal is significant because this was the place where Israel first camped after they crossed the Jordan River. You remember it was at Gilgal that they set up 12 memorial stones that they took from the riverbed to mark what God did on their behalf. While they were there the generation that was born in the wilderness They received the covenant sign of circumcision and the reproach of Egypt was rolled away there at Gilgal. And so those memorial stones at Gilgal were meant to be a perpetual reminder of God's faithfulness to his people. So here's the thing. Gilgal becomes a symbol of their inheritance. Gilgal becomes a symbol of security. So why is it that the people in Amos' day are flocking to these three places? They're flocking to Bethel to worship, they're flocking to Beersheba to worship, they're flocking to Gilgal to worship. What is it about the places? It's what the places represented. Identity, fulfillment, and security. By the time of Amos, God's people are flocking to these places which held religious significance in the past, but God was in none of their thoughts. They were banking on the experiences of the patriarchs with no personal experience of their own. They're coming to the place because in their minds, the place is what's most important. And yet all the while they had forgotten to worship the person that the place pointed to. And that's what religious shrines always do. By the way, this is not just true of this generation in Amos' day, same thing happens in our generation where a place that held religious significance becomes the object of worship rather than the person who made it significant to begin with. So God is extending an invitation to his people here. He's saying, don't seek your life at Bethel or Beersheba or Gilgal. Don't think that Bethel is what brings you identity. Don't think that it's Beersheba that brings you fulfillment. Don't think that your security is linked with Gilgal. God says, seek me and live. What might Bethel be for you? What might Beersheba or Gilgal be for you? Where is it that you turn for identity? What is it that makes you truly feel alive as a person? What is it that you think that you've got to have to bring fulfillment? Something that you absolutely cannot live without. That if it were to be removed from you, life would not be worth living. Because whatever it is, that's what you're worshiping. And folks, that's the essence of idolatry. And all of this was being done in the name of the God of Israel. But God is saying, you're not seeking me. I'm not, the, it's not me that you're seeking. I'm not in your thoughts. Alistair Begg, in a sermon he preached from this very passage, said this. He said that these shrines are a picture of church buildings in which people say prayers, sing songs, go through the routine of worship, but in all of this, all they're doing is displaying their own social respectability. They want to be seen at the right place. There's something within our fallen nature. There's a propensity to make a shrine out of a place that once held spiritual significance. And God comes along and says, listen, I'll pull your place down. Seek me and live. Don't go to Bethel and think that's where your life is found. Seek me and live. And folks, listen, where this shift has happened, where the place becomes more important than the person, of God himself, wherever that's happened in the hearts of believers, churches throughout history, you can trace the removal of the hand of God in blessing and power. It's exactly what Jesus tells the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2, the church that had left its first love. It was a church that was full of all kinds of activity, It was all kinds of religious activity. They were busy, busy, busy little bodies. And Jesus says, listen, I've got this against you. You've left your first love. And he warns the church and says, I'll come and I'll remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent and return to the love that you had at the first. And what's tragic, you go to Ephesus today and you can tour the ruins of where the church at Ephesus used to be when places become more important, when people become more important, when things become more important than God himself. Folks, this is what the Bible calls idolatry. We tend to think of idolatry as bowing down before stone statues, and we think, well, is not really a problem in my life. When in reality, the biblical concept of idolatry is much more profound than that. Yes, it involves that, especially in more primitive context. But listen to me. Every single human being is by nature an idolater at heart. Because every single human being has been made uniquely in the image of God. And when Adam sinned and the entire race was plunged into sin, listen to me, there's now an eternal vacuum in the soul of a person that can, and it's a void that cannot be filled with anything else but God Himself. But what does man do in his blindness, in his lostness? He turns to places. He turns to people. He turns to things, thinking that things can satisfy a void in his soul that only God himself can satisfy. That's why Proverbs 4.21 says, above all else, guard your heart, because out of it flow all of the issues of life. An idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart or your imagination more than God, anything that you seek to give you, what only God himself can give you. Martin Luther said that it's whatever your heart clings to, whatever you rely upon. And oftentimes, it's not so much a bad thing as it is a good thing. A good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. And when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, then it often becomes a really bad thing in terms of our spiritual relationship. We're not immune to the temptation to cling to that which is evil, but the majority of our challenges, listen to this, it'll have to do with taking good things intended for our enjoyment and we devote ourselves to those good things to such an extent that we make idols out of them. And they then become ultimate And we forget the creator out of a preoccupation with creation itself. That's what idolatry is in essence. Tim Keller says this. He says, a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. So that by that definition then, it can be family. It can be a career, making money, some achievement, gaining some measure of social standing. It could be a relationship, it could be approval from others, it could be brains, it could be beauty, political cause, your own morality or virtue even success in Christian ministry. Here's the thing. An idol is whatever. You look at what you say in your heart. If I have that, then my life will have meaning. Uh, If I have that, then I'll know I'll have value. I'll feel significant. I'll be secure. For example, uh, in his book, Keller goes on and talks about the difference of deep idols versus surface idols. And he says often deep idols are, are inward desires that outwardly manifest themselves and attach themselves to some surface idol. For example, if the deep idol in your heart is the approval of people, then the surface idol oftentimes that you'll latch onto uh, may may be doing something well so that you can have your ego stroked by people and it feeds that deeper idol of approval. If the deep idol is one of greed, And a lust for stuff, then the outward idol would be material things that you acquire for yourself. Because you've got to have those outward things to feed that inward desire of covetousness, which the Bible says in the New Testament is idolatry. Do you see how that works? Before it's ever an outward issue, it's an inward matter of the heart. Before idolatry is an issue of the hand, it's an issue of the heart. And it's not just an issue in the Bible, it's the issue. And this is the issue that Amos is calling out here in Israel. The people had made idols out of their places, shrines out of their places. And God was in none of it. And what is it that you're tempted to seek after with all of your heart, with reckless abandon, thinking that you think that's going to bring me life, man, only to tragically sadly find out that it's like drinking salt water. It can't satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. In fact, it will kill you. It will sap the life from you. You want to identify what those idols potentially are in your life, you can ask yourself a few questions. There are a few places you can go to discern whether or not there are hidden idols beneath the surface in your life. One way, think about your thought life for just a second. The true God of your heart is what your thoughts go to when there's nothing else demanding your attention. What do you daydream about? What occupies your mind when you have nothing else to think about? More often than not, there may be an idol there lurking in the shadows. Another way is to discern how you spend your money. Because oftentimes we sacrifice to that which we worship. We give gifts to that which we truly worship. And so how we often use our money is an indicator of the God that we worship. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A third way... Um, What is it that you're really living for? What's the motive, the daily motive behind the daily grind of your life? What is it that you're living for? One way to discern this is how you respond to frustrated hopes, unanswered prayers. Just suppose you ask for something that you don't get. You may become sad. You may become disappointed. But life isn't over for you. You go on. It's because it's not a God to you. The Lord Jesus Christ is your living hope. But if it's something else, you may get bitter. You may respond in explosive anger. You may, you may respond in despair. And if so, then you've probably identified your idol. Another test, uh, your, your uncontrollable emotions. Tim Keller says this, look for your idols at the bottom of your most painful emotions. If you're angry, ask, is there something here too important for me? Do the same thing with your fear or your guilt. Ask yourself this question, am I so worried and fearful because something in my life is being threatened that I think is necessary when in reality it's not? If you're overworking, driving yourself into the ground with activity, ask yourself, do I feel that I've got to have this to be fulfilled and significant? Because listen, probing to such depths often reveals our idols. Bethel, Beersheba, Gilgal. Identity, fulfillment, security. Often into these things we retreat, seeking life but there's no life to be found. There's only death. God says, seek me and live. And notice he doesn't say, seek your life and find me in the process. That's not what he says. He says, seek me and live. The emphasis is on seeking the Lord. And that's why Paul could write in Colossians chapter 3 that our life is hidden with Christ and God. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And then he goes on and says, put to death uh, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So the invitation then of God's presence, the lamentation of God's prophet, one final thing that I want you to see is this. There's an exhortation here to God's people. Only after the prophet has dealt with the worship issue, the fact that idols were occupying the ultimate place in their heart, he then begins to deal with their social ills that were ripping apart the fabric of society and he exhorts God's people, uh, seek the Lord and live, but then you notice the, the exhortation at the close of the chapter, he's saying seek good and not evil. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. Because idols were enthroned in the hearts of God's people, People then became objects, and there was a complete breakdown in terms of their relationships with one another. How bad had it gotten? Verse 7 says people weren't interested in true righteousness. They weren't interested in justice. Verse 10 says that they no longer wanted to hear the truth. They hated him who reproved in the gate. They abhorred him who spoke the truth. Verse 11 says that... uh, Society became known as people manipulated the tax system to their own advantage. And Israel's leaders taxed the fool out of the people just so that they could line their own pockets. Verse 12, people were oppressing the righteous and loved corruption. Verse 13, they loved to drown out the voice of reason. He who is prudent will keep silent in such a time for it's an evil time. So it was a, it was a difficult, dark day But the complete breakdown in terms of their social ethics is linked to the fact that the people had enthroned idols in their hearts. It's the spiral down chaos that Paul describes in the first chapter of Romans. When God's people exchange the truth of who God is for idols, and idols become enthroned in the heart, the natural consequence of that is a breakdown in terms of social relationships and the emergence of all kinds of social ills and evils. Now folks, listen, isn't that where we are in terms of our society? But don't think that Amos chapter 5 is addressing American society so much as it's speaking to the church, to the people of God, who ought to know better. Listen to me, who, who ought to be a radiant beacon of light to a world that is completely in the dark when Christ is enthroned in believing hearts, when Jesus is the Lord of the church and God's people are madly in love with the Lord Jesus Christ above all else and that bleeds over into the way that we relate to one another in this fellowship. when people come in the doors and they sense and they sense the aroma of another world. And it's not us, but it's Christ in us who is the hope of glory. And folks, that's the witness that our world desperately needs to see in these days. Right? Now here's the thing. Idolatry is the issue. But we can't free ourselves from the grip of the idols of the heart. We can't give ourselves a new heart. But aren't you glad that God can and God does in the gospel? And that's why the gospel is such good news. It's only as we look to the cross of Jesus Christ in faith that we're set free from the idolatrous grip of lesser loves which so often dominate our minds. Because it's there at the cross that we behold a greater love. The creator himself in the flesh bleeding and dying for his wayward creatures. So it's not that we love our families too much or we love the creation too much. It's that we love God too little in relation to the gifts that He gives. But see, the beauty of it is when God does a work in your heart and in your soul and you love Christ, then the love that you have for others will be proportionate and beautiful, right? Let's stand for prayer. What a powerful, powerful passage this is. It was Isaac Watts, the hymn writer, I think, who expressed it best. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for sinners, for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I had done he groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown, love beyond degree. And well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin. Thus might I hide my blushing face while Calvary's cross appears. Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt mine eyes to tears. All oh, but drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. Have you given yourself away to Christ in repentance and faith? What I love about Paul's words to the Thessalonian church, he man what a testimony that church had. But right out of the gate, here's what Paul says. He says, man, everybody's talking about how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The emphasis so much is not turned on them turning from their idols as it is turning to God. They turn to God from idols. And let me tell you, once you behold the beauty and the glory of God in the gospel, idols will no longer intrigue and allure. you know Jesus every head bowed every eye closed if you don't know Jesus today oh how I urge you now while you have opportunity Jesus says seek me and live he's the fountain of living water he'll never run dry he's bread from heaven that satisfies God says seek me and live Christ died for you on the cross rose again from the dead and he will save to the uttermost those who come to him in faith in faith Lord, thank you for your word. God, whatever decisions need to be made today, Lord, may there be freedom and liberty for those decisions to be made. Oh, God, convict us. Plow up the ground of our heart. Lord, if the human heart is an idol factory, God, show us those things in our life that we turn to as potential saviors that can't save places we run to to try to find identity, fulfillment, and security. Lord, my hope is found in Jesus alone. That's the cry of the redeemed heart. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.